Well, good morning. My name is Joe, and I'm an associate pastor uh, here at Grace Church. Uh, please uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be taking a look at verses 8 to 12. For those of you uh, with the Pew Bibles in hand, uh, I believe it's in page 810. Now this week as I was preparing uh, for this message, in my reading I came across this passage from a commentary that was so helpful uh, in the way we view uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I'm sure many of you may know we're going through a sermon series. Uh, We're going to be doing that for quite some time, going through the Sermon on the Mount. And I found a perspective that I thought would be uh, helpful for us in kind of orienting where we are in terms of a relation to the things that Jesus has to say for us. So listen to uh, what this commentator says here, and he's uh, referring to, uh, he's talking about the secular philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. But listen to what he has to say. It says, probably nobody has hated the softness of the Sermon on the Mount more than Friedrich Nietzsche. His book called The Antichrist, what a title for a book, right? The Antichrist is his most violent anti-Christian polemic. In it, he defines what is good as all that heightens the feeling of power, the will to power, and power itself in man, and what is bad as all that proceeds from weakness. Consequently, in answer to his own question, what is more harmful than any vice, he replies, active sympathy for the ill-constituted and weak, Christianity. And he says, nothing in our unhealthy modernity is more unhealthy than Christian pity. He despises God as God of the sick, God as spider, God as spirit. Says Christianity is mankind's greatest misfortune. Now I wonder, as you are listening to this passage that was read, once you kind of move beyond the initial offense that it causes uh, in your uh, disposition, I wonder if there's any of you deep down in your hearts resonated with anything Nietzsche had said more than you're perhaps willing to admit. Because listen to Jesus' words as we've gone through them up until this point. He says, blessed are who? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, what, mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. And we're about to see today, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted, those who are reviled. Blessed are you when people utter all kinds of evil against you. And my question for you this morning is, how in the world is that a blessed life? And yet... A Christian, what we find, is one whose identity identity is so shaped by Jesus that their taste for the good life has been permanently altered, permanently altered in a way that resembles nothing of the world. And I have to say this morning, now more than ever, we need a vision for a blessed life that is different than the one that is pursued by most in our country. In a time when people aren't really asking whether Christianity is true, but whether Christianity is good. And church, I have to say I am so grateful to be sharing these words with you this morning because it gives us a vision, a new vision, 
and has the potential and the power to rewire the imagination of our church for what a blessed life looks like because it is only in pursuing the truly blessed life that our lives will be changed, that Jesus' name will be exalted, and the world will see that Christianity is good. And so having said that, let me read for you today's text. Again, it's Matthew 5, verses 8 to 12. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Now with that said, let's get right into the text, because according to our passage this morning, a blessed life according to Jesus is marked by three things, and we'll get uh, right into it. The first thing that is marked by is purity, okay? A blessed life according to Jesus is marked by purity. Notice it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now let's pick that verse apart. Now what does, it, what does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the pure in heart? What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, it's really two things. It's a way of seeing the world with integrity and honesty. Let me go over those two things quickly. Integrity. Now where, do I, where am I getting this word integrity? Well, Jesus is describing the kind of life in which we live in a manner that is consistent and is holy in service of God's word. A life that is purely in God's word. Now, where am I seeing that? Well, if you take apart the word uh, pure in its original language, uh, it's actually bringing us back to the Old Testament. And for those of you who may know, you may know this, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, it's more specifically referring to the purity laws in the Old Testament. There were these ceremonial laws that God gave to his people, and these were exacting detailed instructions on how to maintain oneself pure. Because God is a holy God and can't be approached by imperfect human beings, God made provisions for his people in in learning and and keeping these purity laws so they can now uh, enter into and be in the assembly assembly of a holy God. And so it was knowing and keeping these laws that one could enter into his presence. And that's what this word pure is invoking. Now, what does that mean for us here in our day? Because we no longer have these ceremonial laws that are binding to us, and Jesus in his flesh abolished those laws. And so what he means for us is to, for us to be reading and meditating on the word of God and seeing the word of God as an instruction manual for our lives. When there's doubt, Instead of turning to any other worldly authority, it is for us to turn to the unchanging truth of God's word and building your life upon it, building your life around it. 
Now, I have to pause here real quickly and say this entire notion of building your life around the truth and authority of God's word flies in the face of this modern, secular narrative of self-actualization. Right? It makes absolutely no sense to the world, right? Because especially now, when we're living through a time, when, as Pastor Aaron mentioned in his prayer, when the entire notion of truth is up for debate, and we're asking, well, who's telling the truth? We can never be sure of. Naturally, without God's word, what are we left with? What's true for me? And so we say, what's true for me is true, and what's true for you is true, so you need to find out your truth and live in it, as I will find out my truth and live in mine. We're also living in a time when we can't trust any authority that is out there. We don't know who to turn to. We feel like they have their own selfish interest in mind that they're not looking out for me. So where are we going to turn to? We turn to the authority within So much of what we are living through in this season is a result of that, can't you see? And it's embodied so well in the Pixar movie, Frozen. And actually, I heard this illustration from my old pastor. The entire movie, Frozen, is based around this philosophy. And specifically, there's a song in there, I'm sure, especially for those of you with children, you may have heard it to death. It's a song called Let It Go. Listen to these words from the song. It says, it's funny how, I'm not gonna sing it to you. (laughs) It says, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem small, and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. At first glance, it sounds courageous, doesn't it? But here's the problem. If you were to live this out, can't you see that we no longer have any standards by which we measure any moral act? Right? Everything goes because your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and I have no uh, moral authority to say whether you are right or wrong. And if that's what happens and we can't trust any authority, then really what happens is what's going to drive the world is by those people who can simply find a following. It doesn't matter if what they're saying is objectively true or not because there is no such thing as objective truth. So everything that has to do with life in terms of accruing power and influence over others is simply a matter matter of, at all costs, having and finding a following for yourself, and that is a dangerous place to be. And I have to say at this point, for the church, we are not immune to this movement in thinking either, because in so many ways, we are also conformed to the world. As the church, we lose our witness in the world when we are blown by the winds of the current moment. And instead of looking to scripture to guide us, when we follow social media and different political platforms and even celebrity pastors and what they have to say to us, the call, friends, is to be pure, to be purely in the Word of God. It's integrity. 
But the second thing is honesty. It's to be lacking in deceit. Because here's what's interesting. Notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the pure in their doctrine. Blessed are the pure in their habits of Bible reading. He does not say, blessed are the pure in their behavior. As important as those things are, and Jesus is certainly pointing to that, he says, blessed are the pure in what? Blessed are the pure in heart. Listen to what Psalm 24 has to say. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. According to the Bible, to be pure in its biblical definition is not just having pure doctrine or behavior, it's having pure motives. No falsehood, no deceitful agenda, no play acting, which is the essence essence of hypocrisy. And Jesus puts this very strongly when he was addressing the religious leaders. He's often the most harshest when it comes to those uh, who are in power uh, and is over the religious lives of the people because listen to what he has to say in Matthew 23. He's calling out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which, appear out, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's talking about not being pure on the outside, but being pure from the inside out. That is what he is talking about. And there's blessing in store for them. What is that blessing? It says, they shall see God. That is the blessing. But what does it mean to see God? If you're to take that word apart, in its Greek word, it has a sense of what was once invisible, now being revealed to become visible. What was once out of sight, that is coming in full view. And we see, if you go back to the Old Testament, we see Old Testament figures experiencing this to a degree. You may recall, uh, back in Exodus 33, if you uh, remember Moses, he's called up into Mount Sinai to receive the law uh, from God. And at some point, he begs God, right, to show him his glory. And so God says, you know what? I will show myself to you, uh, but I can't, you can't see me face to face because, I'm, again, I'm holy And so if you were to see me, the radiance of my glory and beauty will uh, incinerate you. And therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you in the crevice of the rock. And I will cover it, and I will pass you by, and you can basically see my backside, right? That's the extent uh, to which you can see me without being consumed uh, by my glory. And so that's what he does. And you may recall, when Moses comes down, what happens? Moses doesn't know this is happening, but the people are terrified of Moses. Why? Because his face was shining like the sun from the glory of having seen a glimpse of who God is. Do you want to see this God? Not just hear about him, but really experience him for yourself. I know many of you are struggling and you're saying, man, only if I could see God. Here's how. To be pure in heart. But how does that happen? 
because we can't make ourselves clean as we've seen in the children's video. One word for you, it's repentance. Why? Because repentance is nothing more than going to God honestly. Honestly, without any deceit and saying, God, here I am. Here's all my sins, all of my brokenness. I bring them before you. And it's casting yourself onto the mercy and the grace of a holy God who will, as we see in 1 John chapter 1, who will be faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a key to purity. That's why Martin Luther once upon a time said, all of life is repentance. It's not about paying penance. It's not about beating yourself up over your sin. It is about casting yourself onto the loving and restoring love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is what is going to make you pure from the inside out. Blessed are the pure in heart because when you do that, you will indeed see God. But let's move on to the second thing because the second thing that marks the life, uh, a blessed life, is peacemaking. Peacemaking. And it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, when Jesus is talking about peace here, I need to make this very clear. When he talks about peace, he's not talking about an absence of conflict. He's not talking about an absence of turmoil. No, that's too shallow of an understanding of what peace is. When Jesus talks about peace, he's talking about a presence, a fullness of wellness. The Old Testament word for peace is shalom. And it's the biblical worldview that saw a world of peace as a universe uh, uh, that is analogous to, if you will, a beautiful garment, right? It is a well-woven fabric, right? These, the, these fabric kind of that are woven together to, to, to compose a beautiful garment in which interdependent beings Right? Individuals, institutions, systems are all working together for the thriving of the common good where everybody wins. Right? That is the kind of thing that Jesus is referring to when, he's t- when he says peace. So if that is our definition of peace, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, the implication here, obviously, is that if you have to make peace, there are areas in your life where there is no peace. So then the call to be a peacemaker is to take parts of the fabric that is frayed, torn apart, and the work is to bring them back in and to weave them back together again. And so if that's what peacemaking is, then we realize that peacemaking can't just be a simple handshake and well wishes. I wish you well. I'm so sorry that you're experiencing this disintegration of peace in your life. I wish you well, hope you feel better, and be on our merry way, because that has the veneer of peacemaking without the substance. And if I may dare say this, Jesus would say, blessed are the peacemakers, but he would say, woe to those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Because if you look at Jeremiah 6, this is exactly what the Lord says. 
He says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. Another word for that is superficially. Saying peace, peace when there is no peace. See, some of us are so conflict avoidant that we want to patch things over as quickly as you can and move on. And I have to confess that I, as a pastor, and I'm sure uh, those of you who are well-meaning Christians may fall into this camp as well, where we confuse appeasement with peace. As long as everybody's appeased, we're okay. But you know, at the same time, there are others of us, we're all about kind of tearing things down, right? Calling things out and saying this, that is wrong. We love speaking into others around us who are doing wrong. But remember, for those of you who are like that, that are not afraid of conflict, that the work is to weave the fabric back in. It's not to tear the whole thing apart and burn it down to the ground. And that's why I love this concept that was brought forth by Martin Luther King Jr. in what he calls the double victory. I get so moved just thinking about the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and the context in which he said these things. He basically says, it is not enough in our work towards peacemaking and bringing justice to this world. It is not enough to win over the evil in a person. No, that victory is not enough. You need the double victory in which you win their friendship over as well. And he would say any efforts of bringing justice into the world that fall short of the ultimate goal of this double victory is not a biblical one at all. And Jesus' followers completely misunderstood this idea because they thought that the coming kingdom of the Messiah would be a military one, would be a nationalistic one, would be a materialistic one. And so the moment Jesus experiences any success in his ministry, what do they do? They, they, They bring a crowd together and try to force him to be king. But Jesus, in effect, says, no, you've got it all wrong. Blessed are the peacemakers. Otherwise, you would see that my citizens would have an uprising, would be fighting for this kind of thing. Not only that, I'll be able to bring the legions of angels down. No, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. Why are they called sons of God? Simply because this. Because children inevitably resemble their parents. And God, the Father, is the ultimate peacemaker. It was through Christ that God was pleased to have broken down in his flesh, Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility, making peace, killing the hostility. See, this was the mission and work of the Father that Jesus' Son took for himself. And if you were to follow Jesus, this is a call upon your life as well. Now, one of the things that I admire the most are family businesses. And in my first week here, Pastor Aaron took me to Wilkes Family Deli. I think that's just around the corner here. And what I found is that they've been around forever, right? It's a family business. And every time I enter those establishments, uh, walk by them, there's just something that draws me in. I don't know what it is. And my mind starts going. I start thinking about, wow, like like the years of, of intimate history that this family shares with one another. Where I imagine the child seeing their parents hard at work in their trade that has been crafted over generations. 
And just by osmosis, right, you can't learn these things from school. They absorb the family trade into their being. Whatever it is, the family recipe, the tricks of the trade, where it feels almost sacred to see what is being produced in that family business. I just imagine the intimacy that has developed over generations. Do you realize, friends, if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, that is the kind of relationship that the Father desires with you. See, we talk about discipleship all the time at our church. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be swept up into a relationship with God the Father in which you see Him at work. In an intimate relationship with Him, you absorb His values, you absorb His heart for the poor and the marginalized and those who don't know Him. And you just live out the family trade to be in the family business of discipling the world for his sake. And see, that's a precious thing. And that's why even when all attempts at peacemaking go awry and we're persecuted for the sake of Christ, as we'll see, we can consider ourselves blessed. I often imagine throughout church history, all of the martyrs that have come, gone before us. You remember the popular saying, right? Blood of the saints is a seed of the church. I wonder why that is. And I think it's because in the blood of the saints, the world gets a picture of people who are so in love and know who are so loved by the Father and can't help but live out the Father's love in the world, that unbeknownst to them, they are drawn to the God of Christianity. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, again, the sobering reality is that if you follow this God follow this Jesus into discipleship of carrying out the family business, you will be persecuted. So let's look at this last point because really, and this is the craziest notion of all, (laughs) the third thing that marks the life of a blessed person is persecution. Now this wraps up this little kind of uh, beatitudes, and so let me read this for you. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, what does it mean to be persecuted? For those of us who are not risking our lives this morning to come and worship Jesus, it's hard for us to understand So unlike in other parts of the world, in our part of the world, we need to parse this out a little bit. Because notice, Jesus Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted, what? For righteousness' sake. Notice, Jesus does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are cantankerous. He does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are being difficult. 
He does not say blessed are those who are persecuted because they are seriously lacking wisdom and are being foolish and unwise in their Christian witness. Basically saying, if you are suffering because you are obnoxious, I'm sorry, my friend, you are not being persecuted, and this promise does not pertain to you. And First Peter chapter 4, Peter brings it home for us, and he's also talking about persecution. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. Basically saying you don't get any medals for being a jerk. But what does this mean? Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he clarifies what that means. Because later on, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and order all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for following Jesus, he says. John chapter 15, this is Jesus speaking. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So if you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. But why, oh why, would being like Jesus lead to your persecution? Is he not, after all, the God of love? So why? Well, here, here's, in some ways, if you read the Gospels, it makes perfect sense. Because on the one hand, there was no one in history that was gentler and kinder than Jesus Christ. It was he who said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So that is true, but on the, on the other hand, what is also true was that there was perhaps no one in history that was more condemning of empty religion, false piety, idolatry, and hypocrisy than Jesus. Remember the words that I read to you earlier in the way he addressed the religious authorities, the pastors of the time? He even calls them a viper, a brood of vipers. He calls them snakes. All kinds of unflattering things. Now taken in isolation, they're harmless, but the combination of the two was what people could not stand. Because think about it this way. If you're just gentle and kind, nobody's going to hate you. You're harmless to anybody. You're just like a walking fortune cookie. <laughs> right? And that's how many people see Jesus. But on the other hand, if you're just fiery and condemning, and if you're just on your soapbox yelling at people all the time, right? I see this all the time living in Manhattan. People just walk by. You're not respectable. Nobody's going to pay attention to you, and you're going to be dismissed out of hand. But if you are both, you cannot be dismissed. And that's why, for those who knew themselves to be sinners in Jesus' day, they were so drawn to Jesus. But those who were righteous in their own eyes, his gentleness and kindness only magnified Jesus' critique of them. They could not dismiss him. And that's how Jesus managed to turn 
and otherwise morally upright, right, law-abiding citizens into a bloodthirsty mob who would eventually hang him on the cross. Now, friends, here is the litmus test for us. My question for you this morning is, are we following this Jesus? Because here's the barometer. Jesus says in Luke 6, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Those are some strong words. And especially during this time, if I may, let me speak very directly to all of us. In your circles... Do you find yourself repeating the rhetoric of either the Fox News on the one hand or CNN News on the other? Does the Jesus that you confess align perfectly with your moral, social, political framework? Does the Jesus that you confess to follow ever rub against your sensitivities, never mind others around you. If you find yourself perfectly at home in your picture of Jesus and he never offends you nor others around you, no matter what you believe in about the world, I believe it's time for serious reflection. But friends, if you were to embrace persecution and embrace the offense of Jesus, there's a blessing in store for you. And that blessing, as we find in this passage, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And again, he says, your reward is great in heaven. And friends, this is really important for us to remember why. Because when we are persecuted, we either want to retreat from the world and keep our head down and go unnoticed and close our mouths. Or... Uh, We want to find others like ourselves and we want to band together and we want to snap back if we can and form our own little cultural enclave here as a way of reclaiming power and control. But no, Jesus says you don't do either of those things. He says rejoice in your persecution, not in the mere fact of your persecution as if persecution in and of itself is a good thing. No, because persecution is, as we Uh, Look at this passage. If you let God guide you through it, and if you cling to Jesus through it, is only going to prove to you of who you are and where it is that you are going. Why? Notice here, rejoice. Why? Because they also persecuted the prophets that came before you. Who are the prophets? They were the mouthpieces of God, right? God spoke directly to them, and God spoke directly through them. And they could speak directly back to God. And what kept these prophets going as they were getting slaughtered? It was their calling. It was their deep understanding that they belonged to God himself. It was that kind of intimate relationship that kept them going. Friends, in your persecution, as you're feeling very uneasy with yourself and the world around you, would you know who you are? Actually, let me, let me say it another way. Know whose you are. Because you belong to the God of the universe, the king of the world. See, persecution, the devil may use it to try and bring you down, but it can only prove to you who you are. Jesus always wins. But not only that, 
it can only prove to you of where you are going. Great is your reward in heaven. Now, when Jesus says this, he's not talking about some kind of weird quid pro quo in which, you know, the degree to which you suffer will be the degree to which you will be blessed in heaven. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the kind of reward that you get within a loving family. See, if, you're a, if you have a good father, you never have to worry about, right, uh, getting an A to win the approval of your father because your father, uh, you should know that your father always loves you. But why should we work hard then? Why? Because we want to see, we want to see the smile on our father's face. And that's what's in store for those who remain faithful to the end. That you will see God the Father in his glory and the one who put their stars in their place will look to you beaming with pride and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, my precious son and daughter. And you get to enjoy all of this in the heavenly city where there isn't a microsecond in which where we are not exploding with inexplicable joy. A place in which everything wrong is made right. A place in which everything right is made infinitely better. No wonder Paul, imagining this, says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. See, at this point, you may... Notice that all of the blessings that are talked about here have everything to do with growing in our intimacy and appreciation of who God is. And see, that's where the transformation takes place when we find our blessing in God. Friends, do you want to see God? Like, really, really see Him and not just know about Him? Do you want to experience God, not just as a distant master, but as an intimate Father with you, leading you and guiding you in the family business? Do you want intimacy with God in which He's speaking to you and you get to speak back to Him? Do you want a taste of heaven? This is how. Through your purity and your peacemaking and persecution. Isn't it interesting that to experience the heavenly, otherworldly, we are called to be deeply embedded in the earth. This phrase is thrown around way too much, but let me say it a little bit differently. We are called to not be of this world, but to be in this world. Both things need to be true. To know who you are in Christ, and Pastor Aaron's gonna say this to us over and over and over again. (laughs) To know who you are in Christ and to live it out in this world. That's how you're going to experience, that's how we are going to experience Jesus in our midst and exalt him in the presence of the watching world. Where we're able to say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because friends, Jesus is worth it. He is the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy of making us his own, he is the one who was perfectly pure in spirit and yet endured the jeering and the mocking of the crowd. He endured the pains of the cross where through his broken body and shed blood, he made peace, reconciling us to God and to one another. That is the Jesus that we are called to follow. So church, may we follow this Jesus holding on to him ever so tightly, scorning the shame of persecution as the Lord calls us into the ministry of peacemaking as he continues to make us pure in heart. Let us pray.
Our Father, we are living through a confusing time. But God, in the midst of all of our confusion and anxiety, we thank you for the surety that we find in your word and the surety of knowing what a blessed life looks like. And God, as we look to be pure in heart, as we look to be peacemakers, and as we look to rejoice in our persecution, we ask that your spirit would empower us for the task. Give us a taste of these blessings that you've promised as we look to be faithful to the end. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name.